Welcome to The Parlor, featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Scott Graham about his article written with Dr. Linda Walsh. There's no such thing as scientific controversy. Good afternoon, Dr. Scott Graham, and thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. We greatly appreciate it. Before we begin, we would like to introduce ourselves. My name is Cassie, and I am a third-year rhetoric and writing and sociology double major. And I'm Will. I am also a rhetoric and writing major with a philosophy of law minor. And the two of us are in Dr. Mark Longacre's Principles of Rhetoric class. And after reading your article, There's No Such Thing as Scientific Controversy for class, we have accumulated a couple of questions we would like to ask you. And before we dive into those, uh, we would also like to ask you a few questions about your work here at the University of Texas at Austin. Great. So I'll take it from here. Dr. Graham, you specialize in computational rhetoric, and most of your courses here at UT are based on that interest. What made you interested in computational rhetoric and technical communications? Uh, Great question. Um, Basically, I became interested in computational rhetoric because I wanted to read more faster than I could ever possibly read, right? And so, I mean, for, for the research I was doing, I was trying to understand certain patterns in certain discursive systems, right? So I don't want to know how one speech gets delivered. I want to know how thousands upon thousands of speeches gets delivered. And there's no way, I mean, I could devote my life to a single project and read and watch each of them in turn. Or I could teach a computer to read what I'm looking for in those speeches or other types of rhetorical artifacts so that it can look for those things very, very, very quickly. Computers are ultimately pretty dumb at it. You can only teach them how to do one thing at a time. They can't capture all that a a human reader can capture. But if you know how to tell it what to look for, you could do it at scale. And so that's why I became really interested in in computational rhetoric, because I knew I wouldn't be able to finish the projects that I wanted to finish in less than a decade if I didn't figure out how to get a computer to help me. So you're analyzing large amounts of data, essentially. Yeah, um, so from project to project depends on how much I'm looking at. A smaller project I did recently, I needed to read about 1,700 biomedical research articles in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it would take forever to read those and look for what I'm looking for. And so I I was trying to understand how physicians have changed their understanding of moral obligations when confronted with the opioid epidemic, right? So as the opioid epidemic has become an increasing public health crisis, they have had more concerns about making sure that they're living up to their responsibilities to public health and not just the patient who's before them right now who might be in pain. And so I wanted to track this change over time. And that meant a lot of articles, more articles than I could ever read by myself. So you're helping keep them accountable to a certain degree. I I don't know. We'll see about that. Um, I don't necessarily have a great track record with convincing physicians or biomedical researchers to read my work. I wish they would, but we'll see where this project goes, right? It's in early stages. I'm I'm looking to do a, a version of it that expands beyond just opioids and looks at antibiotic resistance and vaccine policies. And these are three areas where the, the wishes of the patient's come into direct conflict with public health needs. 
And uh, it's important that however doctors choose to establish their moral responsibilities in that case, that they're doing so in a consistent and diligent way and not just making gut you know, reactions in the moment. That's fascinating and very unique. What other courses have you taught at UT in addition to computational and digital rhetoric? So uh, one course I'm teaching right now is called TechCom and Wicked Problems. And the idea behind the course is that when we confront really complex, intractable problems in society, climate change, pollution, health equity, that it requires a very diligent approach to getting all sorts of different people involved in the communication process, right? So you need policymakers and scientists and academic researchers and sociologists and economists, but also citizens who are involved, stakeholders, and, and not just Congress, right? When I say government and policymakers, I mean local city councils, and, and that's a whole lot of people with a whole lot of different opinions and a whole lot of different knowledge levels that have to come together and come to some sort of agreement. So the goal of the course is to teach students how they can serve as effective mediators and facilitators in those kind of environments, how they can help the scientists educate the citizens who may not know the latest state of the art, but also how they can help the scientists understand the community values, especially if scientists aren't a part of that community or sub-community. That's very, very cool. So now we are going to ask you a few questions regarding the article you wrote in collaboration with Mrs. Walsh. Uh, There's no such thing as scientific controversy. Before we move to these questions, could you give us an overview of the article? So the basic goal of the article was try to have an intervention in the rhetorical academic community. Right. So for decades now, rhetoricians who are interested in science have been trying to understand how scientific controversies play out in the world. But they've been doing it without ever like explicitly articulating a definition of what a scientific controversy is. Right. They just kind of assumed that everybody knew what it was. And it turned out that all of the different researchers were using the term differently and none of them were using it wrong. Right. There wasn't necessarily a problem with the way that they were doing their work, it was all good work, but they were talking past each other, I think, without realizing they were talking past each other because they didn't share a common understanding of what a scientific controversy is, right? So the the main point of it was to go carefully through the last 30 years of research on scientific controversies and show that different people at different times have used the term differently and understood what a scientific controversy is differently and that that's had an effect on how they did their work and what their findings were, and that's had an an effect on how other people understood their work because they were using a different understanding of scientific controversy. I understand. So you're defining the statement, essentially. As you were saying, scientific controversies are truly unspecified within the academic community and also within kind of the greater world at large, too. You mentioned that a lot of different scholars in your article have tried to define what a scientific controversy is. So I guess the question becomes, like, why is there so much scholarly controversy about scientific controversies? Because however you define it, the what a scientific controversy is has real world 
impacts on people's daily lives, right? So is climate change real and is it caused by humans, right? If that's a controversy, if that's a scientific controversy, then the policies we pass really matter, right? And so I totally understand where a lot of people are coming from saying the science is very settled on this. We shouldn't treat it as a controversy. Uh, We should just go ahead and enact policies, but we have to get community buy-in, right? So we're seeing right now firsthand the problem of treating scientific controversies as though it's just settled and expecting community buy-in. So we're seeing like these handful of anti-social isolation COVID-19 protesters, right? And so they don't have buy-in. They don't agree from the beginning that scientists are right. And so they don't want to follow the policies that are being set forth. And so one goal of the article is trying to get to a place where we can better understand how scientific controversies unfold without assuming at the beginning that everyone's going to agree with one side or the other. Yeah, definitely. And on the kind of topic of what's going on right now with the COVID-19 crisis, it definitely seems as though we could be living in the midst of a scientific controversy right now. And we were curious if you had any thoughts as to whether COVID-19 or the response to it could be considered a scientific controversy. And if so, what kind of controversy does it look like to you, whether it's a crisis, a policy dispute, or a paradigm revolution, like what you were saying in the article? One of the points of the article is that you could take any public dispute and read it through any of those lenses and not necessarily be wrong. And so it's hard to pick just one and even more, I think with COVID-19 than than a lot of other ones, it's literally all right now at once. So in terms of like an internal scientific dispute, a potential paradigm revolution, right? We don't have a long history of research on COVID-19 because it's brand new. We just discovered it. So scientists and medical researchers are discovering every day new things, right? We knew it was pneumonia. Now we know it has kidney effects. Uh, Apparently it gives you frostbite on the toes, right? These new things are coming out every day as we try to figure out how it spreads, what the signs and symptoms are. So that's happening. Obviously at exactly the same time, it's a crisis. It's clearly, you know, I lose track every day of how many people are confirmed infected and how many people have died, right? Over 40,000 in the U.S. as of yesterday. So that's a crisis that has to be addressed immediately. And so it's a good example of overflow, which is another term from the article about when science spills the boundaries into politics. And then um, there are obviously political disputes and debates about it right now. The same protesters I just mentioned, right? Some folks don't want to social isolate. They want to take the pandemic on the chin and develop that herd immunity regardless of the number of people who die. And so it's it's all at once and pretty much every controversy is all at once if the public knows about it and if the public cares about it. Yeah, definitely. You can see exactly all the ways that you were saying that this moment is really highlighting all of the ways that we can describe controversies and how the medical world interacts with the political world and everything else. So one more question on the general side of the article. 
So we have seen that there's a lot of commotion on how to define a scientific controversy and what it consists of. As we were saying, they kind of bleed into each other. And you kind of make this underground argument that maybe scientific controversies don't exist at all. So we were wondering if you could go into more detail on the thought process behind that and what exactly that means if scholars can't agree about how to define a scientific controversy, whether that simply means that they don't exist. So I think one of the dangers of calling something a scientific controversy is it automatically assumes that the current state of scientific knowledge gets to decide whether or not it's controversial or not, right? And so that creates this sort of anchor point outside the conversation that the rhetorician is trying to analyze that determines whether or not it's true and could be a trump card at any point. And you know, I, the problem with that is you could start to look at two different cases that are very much the same, and you would call one a scientific controversy and one not, for example. So the, the example I think that highlights it the most is um, if you look at Rachel Carson, she published this book, Silent Spring, that really invented the field of ecotoxicology. She identified for the first time how pesticides were causing, you know, food chain downstream effects in our environment. At the time, biologists and ecologists did not believe that could happen. The state of scientific knowledge of the day was that she was wrong. And so she published a popular press book to convince people that, no, there's a real thing here and we need to pay attention to it. Fast forward, you know, 30, 40 odd years later, and you see someone like Andrew Wakefield publish a very poorly designed, very problematic study showing that vaccines cause autism. Right. So in both cases, it's really hard from a rhetorical perspective to say that either person was different. Right. Rachel Carson looked at a scientific establishment, said, I don't believe what you're saying, and I'm going to try to make an argument outside science to convince people that I'm right. And Andrew Wakefield did the exact same thing, looked at the scientific establishment, said you're wrong and wanted to make an argument outside science. Now, I still believe Rachel Carson was right and Andrew Wakefield was wrong, but I don't think you can build your rhetorical inquiry around that, right? If you're going to say how each of those folks argued, they argued in the same way, they used the same strategies, they were responded to in similar ways by the scientific community. So it's a controversy for sure, but calling it scientific, you would either have to say in some weird way that Carson was wrong or they, they were both wrong or they were both right. And I, I think that it, rhetoricians need to I don't want to say that rhetoricians need to be apolitical. They don't. But when we're understanding how argument unfolds, we can't let the politics drive our analysis. So it's important that we understand how people argue, whether we agree with them or not, so that maybe later, if we choose to become involved on a political level, then we're responding to what was actually there and not what our preconceived notions told us should be there. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think that there is definitely a danger in using the label of scientific controversy and that rhetoricians do have this responsibility that you were talking about. So Dr. Graham, regarding praxeography, you stated this method as a good method to analyze scholarly work. 
And I was wondering if you could define praxeography and explain how it differs from other methods of analyzing scholarly work. Yeah, so basically it's about what you do versus what you say, right? So if the, the actual practice of a rhetorician or a scientist, whoever you're studying, is, is the basic foundation for this type of inquiry, right? So rhetoricians and scientists say a lot of things about what their work means, right? That's their job. They're supposed to write articles, give conference presentations, and describe it. Now, it turns out that if you study the academic inquiry process, whether it's humanities or science, that there's often a difference between what happens in the research phase for scientists in the lab, for rhetoricians maybe in the library or at the computer screen, and then what happens when they write up an account of what they did later. And so the praxeographic approach centers in on what they did in the research environment and said, okay, I see what you're doing as a practice here, and I'm going to use that to interpret your findings rather than how you repackaged and sold it to me later. So actions speak louder than words. That's a good summation. Well, that was the last question. So thank you for meeting with us today, Dr. Graham, and giving us the opportunity to interview you. Uh, the article was fascinating, and we are grateful that we got to speak with you regarding it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was great to talk with y'all. This concludes our episode of The Parlor. This episode was produced with the help of Anna Gonzalez, Zoe Howard, Will Hunter, Eric Sikor, and Cassie Williams. We'd like to extend a thanks to our classmates, Brandon Jenkins and Savannah Smart, whose questions were featured in our interview. Finally, all opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you for listening.